0: Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast, I'm Eddie Joe. This is part two of my podcast on the expectations for the families of COVID-19 patients on mechanical ventilation. Today, for historical context, this is the 27th of August of 2021. I already went through the first five where I talked about the length that people spend on the ventilator, how what the mortality is, generally speaking, how they're immunocompromised, how every day that nothing goes wrong is a good day, And likely the fact that the patients will not go directly home should they survive their hospitalization from COVID-19 if they end up on mechanical ventilation. They'll probably go to an LTAC or something like that. They'll likely need a tracheostomy and a PEG tube. But let's move on to number six because you guys have already listened to the other podcast, right? Right? Right. Also, sorry about the audio quality on that other one. I take with my microphone and hopefully it should be better number six is very dear to my heart uh, and it doesn't have to do with the fact that my wife is a critical care nurse but i want to let you all know that the nurses are providing you with the correct information they've likely been doing this for a year and a half now and know exactly what's going on with your loved one when i do for example multidisciplinary rounds and these are conducted every day on your loved one the nurses are part of the team also, there usually is, uh, for example, dietary, the pharmacist, case manager, uh, charge nurse, other people, etc. And the bedside nurses hear every word I say, and I state the plans aloud every single day. It's also an open line of communication between those involved in caring for the loved one, as well. You know, it's it's just part of a team that we're all we're all in sync together they know exactly what the ventilator settings mean. They interact with your loved one far more than I do as they're continuously in the room. They know how much your loved one is having bowel movements, how much they're urinating, how they're tolerating their tooth feeds, and honestly, there's no hierarchy, uh, at least in my institution, where the nurses can't communicate with the physicians. Again, they've been doing this for a year and a half. In theory, uh, some of them are so darn intelligent that they could take care of your loved one without a physician because again, they've been doing the same thing over and over so many times. They're extremely intelligent and they're extremely capable. Please, I beg of you, don't give them a hard time because they're doing the best they can to keep your loved one here on earth with us. i have also seen many nurses who've quit because the workload of taking care of COVID patients is it's just crazy, especially when we've uh I had to extend a little bit more out of our comfort zones of what we're used to taking care of just because we don't want anybody to not be taken care of. Does that make sense? And then there's also the risk of taking COVID home to their families while they're taking care of your loved one. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but it's, it's a risky job with an unknown virus. Just, just be easy with them. The seventh one is going to be a bit controversial. You know that therapy that you've read on the internet? Um, well, I want to tell you that in this ICU, we've tried it and it doesn't work. To be quite honest, and this might get me into trouble, but my trust in the major organizations that shall not be named, uh, my trust in them shall, is, is is broken. I mean, I used to hold them up to a very high regard, but this isn't the case anymore. And this is not a, polit- a political statement. It's just uh, facts. I mean, I, I really figured they'd do better since it's been their time to shine. That being said, that there are treatments that I will not name for the sake of uh, being deplatformed um, that I just don't want to mention by name, but I will give us some context that I'm the son of Cuban immigrants and I don't I don't support a limitation of freedom of speech. That being said, I have tried regimens in the ICU that are, continue, that are considered to be taboo. And again, I'm sorry, they don't, they don't work. I hate to disappoint you, but they just don't work. Even the one that starts with the letter I, if you actually listen to Dr. Pierre Corey, who I have a lot of respect for on the Joe Rogan podcast, his, his recommended therapy in in that podcast, he states that it doesn't work in the ICU as these patients are too far gone. And again, my sentiments today being the 27th of August of 2021 remain that we should be treating patients aggressively earlier in the course of the infection and not wait until they end up in the ICU to be trying the crazy stuff. What disappoints me is that the amount of funding by the NIH on, on studies on studying repurposed medication and therapies is honestly laughable, but in reality, it should make us cry. I understand the concerns that many families present to me, but it's too late, to be honest, when they're in the ICU, and the last thing I want to do is is cause harm. I personally don't want to wait for, for example, the major organizations to tell me how to practice. Uh, to be honest, we've been using corticosteroids since before the recovery trial was published, and we know that steroids work. We've also been using tocilizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody to some extent that works. The other stuff, well, that might work in the outpatient setting, but definitely not not here in the ICU. The eighth thing I wanted to talk about is, is that clinical trial or that study that you're referencing. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you that I've already read that study. If if you know my body of work, you know that, that um, I basically read everything that comes my way. And I'll be able to explain to you exactly why we are or are not doing that particular therapy families get surprised when I tell them when they're trying to say, Hey, you know, uh, bring up, bring up this medication. Why aren't you giving this to my loved one? And I'm able to tell them exactly why. And I, and I have them, you know, bring up the paper on their computer because thankfully everything with COVID is open access. And an example being remdesivir that it does not work on bed to patients. I ask them to bring up the act one trial. And I tell them exactly what, what table justifies the fact that giving a patient who's on mechanical ventilation remdesivir is not going to benefit them. And in fact, it might actually cause them harm. You know, it's it's our duty to know as much as possible about the treatments for patients in the ICU. And again, I don't take that responsibility lightly. I read every day and those who have been following me for over three years now that I've had a social media presence don't even doubt that. But there's a reason why I'm not trying that therapy you want me to try. Chances are because that therapy could cause harm, and I honestly took an oath to not cause any harm to any patients. The ninth part of all this is very frustrating because usually a couple days into all this, we honestly have nothing left to offer outside of supportive care at this time. And by supportive care, I mean just give the patient nutrition, keep the patient comfortable in the vent, make sure the vent is not causing them harm, and sit down and wait it out. I'm sorry. There's nothing else we could do to speed this up. We need to just wait for the inflammation to resolve. I have personally, uh, trialed giving additional steroids and giving higher doses and longer durations, but these, these things come with side effects. This could be done on a case by case basis. And I personally talk to families about it before I do it, because there's no data. I have no, no leg to stand on that that shows that this works, and so I discussed the risks and possible benefits with the family before I proceeded with this. Um, honestly, it could open up the patient to other complications such as infection, uh, avascular necrosis in the future, hyperglycemia, glaucoma, all the bad stuff that comes with steroids. Not to mention that I'm not even sure whether this works or not. Sometimes it has improved things on patients, and other times it has not. I mean, at the same time, I'm walking on a tightrope with all the other organs when imagining these patients. Adding adding complexity to it is not always tolerated by the patient. So we just need to sit tight and be patient. And goes back to one of the other things I said. A day that nothing happens is a good day. The 10th thing I tell my patients' families is in the words of my mentor, Dr. Carl Kemp, who is a genius and he inspired me to become an intensivist. We're going to, quote, dry them out like a potato chip, end quote. There was a trial in ARDS called the FACT-LIGHT trial that showed that conservative fluids are better than liberal fluids in ARDS, and that's not a political statement. Patients end up receiving a significant amount of IV and oral fluids when they're on mechanical ventilation. This comes via sedation, analgesics, paralytics if needed, antibiotics, tube feeds, electrolyte replacement, etc., And these excess fluids need to be removed or else the patient turns into the Michelin men. This also comes with complications. As we all know covid adversely affects the kidneys as well and we try to diurese patients by giving them diuretics such as uh, bumex or lasix slash furosemide and we try to keep them negative on their daily fluid balance as best as we can this means that we try to get them to pee out more fluid than what we're giving them through their mouth or through their veins The adverse effect that we watch out for the most is something called acute kidney injury, where basically the kidneys get upset with us because we're shredding them with medications. It's a side effect. And this happens sometimes when we overdo the diuretics, which is a tricky thing to figure out. I typically try to provide an analogy to my patients, families who have COVID, as well as my patients, where somebody, for example, is walking down the sidewalk and they trip and they sprain their ankle the ankle swells up like a grapefruit. And obviously this is oversimplified, but this is what happens to the lungs. The lung tissue swells and it doesn't let oxygen go into the bloodstream and the carbon dioxide cannot come out of the bloodstream and out into the air. By limiting the fluid balance to a patient to keep them either net even or net negative, we could try to limit the size of said grapefruit or said ankle. I know that there's a lot more to it than that, but you know, generally speaking, when uh, somebody has COVID-19 and they're on mechanical ventilation, I'm not speaking to physicians on the phone. I'm usually speaking to lay people who are terrified of what's going on to their loved one. So I try to facilitate that as much as possible. Now that we're over 10 minutes into this podcast, I'm going to go ahead and close it out right here. Thanks for listening to part two of this podcast. It's going to be a three-parter after all. I got five more tips to give, so stay tuned for that. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate your support. Bye.